This is an ABC podcast. And hello, Tara DeLangraff with you on this Friday. Lovely to have your company on the first day of autumn. Belinda Varischetti is taking a day off, so I've joined you from the Esperance Studios in the state southeast, where there's been thunder and lightning and some very, very frightening shaking of the studio so far this morning. A few showers to boot, though, so hopefully they keep coming far and wide this afternoon, especially as we head into the WA Day long weekend. That'll be a lovely little treat for our state's regional areas after a long, hot summer. And the thought of this possible rain no doubt has some farmers licking their lips at the thought of seeding. Uh, Maybe not licking their lips so much at the thought of input costs and availability, uh, especially if you're expecting fertiliser from Nutrient Ag Solutions' Quinana facility over the last three weeks. Uh, As we know, a fire meant unloading ships was relatively tricky, but we have got some good news for you on this half of the country hour. And before 12.30, we'll also take a look at the work going on behind the scenes to try to get more Asian consumers eating WA-grown oats. First, though, it sounds like there's a sense of unease regarding the future of the cattle industry in Western Australia's north. That's after yesterday's news that the operator of the only large-scale abattoir in the state's north, the Kimberley Meat Company, has gone into voluntary administration. For many Kimberley cattle producers, that meatworks near Broome is their only viable alternative market to the live export trade. Bron Christensen is the head of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association. She says producers in the north will have to consider making all sorts of adjustments. Yeah, look, this is really disappointing news for us. Um, as the only processor here in the north, it's reducing the capacity, I suppose, for, for people to turn off cattle that possibly wouldn't be suitable for other markets. Um, it was a really uh, a good opportunity to, to have an, an outlet here for those cattle that are uh, wouldn't handle the transport and as well as that it's um uh the cost of freight down to perth i think we're looking at around about you know anywhere from 1500 to 2000 kilometers to um our nearest abattoir now so it's certainly going to have a dramatic effect on on the industry up here have you been speaking to any industry members in light of the news what have you heard uh look most of them are, are very concerned about it uh you know, generally people split, I suppose, where their cattle went. You have different uh, markets for different cattle, therefore you had different outlets for different cattle. And what they're finding now is that just the reduction of, I suppose, a little bit of competition in the market, the reduction of the capacity to send cattle locally has really changed the way that they've uh, had to think about where they're marketing their cattle. And also it'll change a little bit of management as well where perhaps they'll be looking at earlier turnoff for some cattle if the seasons aren't favourable as well as that they need to factor in the um, additional cost of around about I think we're looking at about two dollars per kilometer per deck so if you look at a a deck of cows you're probably looking anywhere from 150 to 200 dollars per head additional cost. And how many people over your side of the Kimberley in the West Kimberley are already sort of doing those sums looking at a rain forecast that perhaps isn't very favorable to them and looking to get um, cattle off dry paddocks? 
Oh, look, everyone at the moment, we're looking at a lot of early mustering at the moment where people are uh, getting cattle off um, in, in anticipation of the ongoing dry and that we have missed out on a lot of the wet. We never say never. They tell me that uh, there's always still hope up here, but people are certainly making management decisions now for the long term and to get them through the winter. Um, and so this has really affected where they might have held on for a little bit longer. They'll actually turn them off a little bit earlier now. It's, of course, been a pretty rocky recent couple of years for the KMC. Mm. We heard, of course, late last year from a range of Kimberley businesses who were owed millions of dollars of unpaid debts from the company. During that investigation, I heard from plenty of people who were saying that they'd already stopped doing any business with the Kimberley Meat Company. Are you seeing people in the north that have already adapted to the prospect of not having a local meatworks as an option? No, not really. I think people were obviously concerned about some of the issues that were raised, but uh, as you recognise that, um, you know, negative attention doesn't assist usually with, with you know, um, remedying issues. And so I guess it was uh, possibly the coverage exacerbated some of the financial issues that they had. Look, I think people were very supportive of the KMC supported of good practices with the KMC and certainly appreciated the fact that there was an abattoir locally that they could utilise, um, again, for those cattle that didn't have that additional market or, or the option of, of other markets. So I think in general people were supportive of the abattoir. They wanted to see, obviously, some changes as KMC did itself when they were sort of saying that they were committed to continuous improvement with some of the issues. Uh, as to sort of just saying, well, we won't deal with them anymore, I guess people were cautious, particularly because of that coverage. But uh, generally um, it was just accepted or anticipated that that it would again be an, um, an alternative market for them so look five million dollars according to the coverage is a lot of money in some circles and then in others it's it's not a lot of money it depends i suppose on the business but for a small abattoir with just doesn't have the benefit of economies of scale plus the floods plus the other issues you know i guess it was a um a bit of a death knell i suppose that um that the coverage didn't help where to from here? What's the best outcome for industry now that administration has been called? Oh, look, what we'd love to see is actually have um, someone, an operating, um, someone come in and actually purchase the abattoir and operate it efficiently and effectively and with a massive focus, obviously, on um, yeah, animal welfare and environmental stewardship. So that would be our, our perfect outcome and, uh, yeah, very um open and would be very happy to hear that, that uh, would open up that market again for us, for those cattle that just um, have a difficult time finding another market for them. Bron Christensen, the CEO of the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association, and she was speaking to Alice Marshall. And while we're talking cattle, only about 450 head of trade cattle sold at Mount Barker this morning. That's down around 670 on the previous sale. I have a feeling prices may have gone up a little though, so Tracy Kilnut will summarise all of those prices just before one o'clock. Right now though, it has gone 12 minutes past midday. You're listening to The Country Hour. Well, Nutrien Ag Solutions has just started getting fertiliser out to farmers again from its Quinana facility that was damaged by fire three weeks ago. And one of their main competitors in CSBP has helped Nutrien do just that. As you heard on the Country Hour, the most significant damage from that fire was to port infrastructure, which made it difficult for the company to offload fertiliser from ships. Andrew Duperuzel is the company's manager in the West, and he says there might still be some delays, but he doesn't think prices will be affected. 
so we've been dispatching loads out of the site uh, since Monday. Essentially, what we needed to do was reconfigure a number of things on site uh, that, that enabled us to basically get trucks in and, and obviously get trucks out and um, and that's sort of increasing every day. Uh, so pleasingly, uh, we are sort of back in business and then moving product out the farm. I understand you've formed some sort of an arrangement with one of your competitors too, haven't you? Yeah, we did. Today we announced uh, we've reached a commercial agreement uh, with CSBP, uh, who are essentially helping us uh, offload, store and dispatch uh, some product. And uh, in fact, there's a, a vessel discharging tonight and that'll basically, part of that will go into a nutrient site and part of that will go into a CSBP site. And is the reason for that because of the damaged infrastructure at the port, you're not able to do that yourselves yet? Uh, yeah, so as, as we said uh, before, the shed, uh, the damaged shed was pretty well full, ready for the season, and CSBP reached out and, uh, and it just made sense, uh, basically, to, to push some of that product into them. And it just really, what that does, it just assures uh, that supply can get to farmers in a timely manner. So have you secured some more storage facilities for your fertiliser then? Yeah, we're really active in this space, Richard. We've, we've got some more uh, additional storage uh, locally. Uh, we've got some more that will come online uh, in around about two weeks. Uh, and then we're looking also um, in our regional uh, areas as well where there appears to be some storage available as well. So, you know, we've been really active uh, and we will have additional storage to, to cater for, I guess, this volume that will be affected in this existing site. And we've really been focused on, for now, moving the product that's in the, um, the damaged site and getting that out, and that's going well. So how close is it to business as normal? You're one of the four main fertiliser companies that operate in WA. How much have you been hampered? Are, are farmers likely to have any delays in getting the fertiliser they may need, let's say for grain farmers in the lead up to this seeding? So, so after, this, um, after this cargo this evening um, discharges, pretty well our, most of our seeding fertiliser is here. Uh, but typically in this time of year it will be no different to any year. There is congestion um, at sort of collection points. So we'd encourage farmers to definitely make um, make plans if they haven't already to to book appointments. But all of our seeding fertilizer is here uh, in WA, whether it be in Quinana or whether it be in our regional depot. So we don't foresee um, any supply issues, uh, provided obviously we get some um, urgency around picking up uh, product and getting into the slots. Are you expecting more exaggerated congestion though, if you're sharing? some facilities with CSBP? Yeah, I think so, Richard. That would be realistic. You know, there's going to be, uh, we're going to, uh, I guess, need some flexibility and uh, I guess a little bit of patience. It's certainly not optimal. We, we can't get out of our site in Quinana uh, the usual amount that we normally would. Uh, we're doing as much as we can and we've, uh, I guess, we've surged uh, an alternate site which is close by in Henderson uh, we've got additional storage there as well so it's not certainly not going to be perfect um, but in any case we'll still be able to get out the I guess the commitments that we've made to our customers and they've made to us. So there could be some delays is there likely to be any change to the prices fertilizer prices? Uh, we don't see any any impact from this uh, from this incident 
uh, Richard. Uh, like I said, most of the fertiliser was here. Uh, so really, it's just a matter of getting it out. Andrew Duperuzel, Nutrient Ag Solutions Manager for the West Region. He was speaking with Richard Hudson. And on yesterday's show, you heard about a British container ship carrying 41,000 tonne of fertiliser that was attacked by Houthi rebels and is now slowly sinking in the Red Sea between Africa and Asia. Mr Duperuzel doesn't think one ship going down would have an impact on Australia's fertiliser supplies and prices. He says they won't be offloading any more ships for a number of weeks and he's not sure if future ships would need to use that route through the Red Sea. If you're a grain grower, are you ready for seeding? Have you got all of uh, your inputs on farm? We'd love to hear from you today. Our text number 0448 922 Yes, I know it's only the 1st of March, but it is also the first day of autumn, and I know plenty of you will be busy getting ready, may have been getting ready uh, over the last few months with not too much summer spraying happening. So let us know what's happening in your place. Are you ready for, for seeding? you ready to hit the ground running uh, if this rain does in fact happen? We'll hear from the Bureau very, very shortly. In the meantime, give us a text 0448 922 And while we're still talking grains, a lot of work is going on behind the scenes to try and get more Asian consumers eating WA-grown oats. The Australian Export Grains Innovation Centre has been working with food processors and growers to develop rice and noodles made from oats. Mae Yong is the CEO of My Plant Co, which is a company that wants to market these foods. She says the sales pitch is they're healthier than wheat and rice products and their early research suggests there's no shortage of demand. Particularly since COVID, you know, people are looking for options where they can, um, you know, switch out high carb sort of grains uh, for for better for you nutritional food. So oats does that for you. And uh, what we're proposing with the oat rice, you know, it's higher in protein. It's great for cholesterol, diabetes. It's great for gut health as well. And um, yeah, dietary fibre. The health properties, you know, outweigh than what uh, you know a rice grain could offer. So, what sort of key markets are you hoping to tap into? I think for us, you know, we'll definitely hit um, the Australian market because, you know, we we generally have a tendency to enjoy um, healthier grains and healthier products. And also after exploring all the domestic lines, we already have strong interests coming out of Japan, Korea and um, Middle East markets. So tell me a little bit more about those international markets. How strong is this demand? Very strong. We're already having meetings with key players and, um, you know, just really working out, you know, what sort of arrangements we can have with these partners and looking at getting it into um, everyone's home meals as quickly as possible. So where are we at now in the project? How soon will this become commercially available? Not too long. I think, you know, we'll start our pilot meal probably in about six months. And uh, after that, we'll start focusing on a a larger um, meal operation. What sort of future do you see in this space? It's huge. Like, I mean, I, I would say, you know, the former AGIC CEO, uh, Richard Samanida, said that, you know, um, WA were pretty much sitting on the gold mine, um, the Silicon Valley of oats. And, um, you know, I couldn't agree more. We, we produce such high quality oats. And for a company like us to value add that innovation in formats in rice, noodles, pasta, and a whole heap of other innovations that we're working on, I think the prospect is large. I think consumers are ready for it. They just need a company, a manufacturer to make it for them and present it to them conveniently so they can all eat better and healthier. What sort of benefits do you see from this project from both an Australian perspective and those consumers in Asia? 
I think from an Australian perspective, you know, we're keeping manufacturing here in Western Australia. So, you know, the economic benefit of that is is to the farmers, to the to the staffing, to the employees that will be working in the mill, that will be working in the manufacturing, to, you know, the choices we make in who we choose, you know, the packaging. We, we've already worked with local manufacturing and design companies. So, you know, that's going to flourish the West Australian economy and the Australia Australian economy. Asian consumers, I think they've been waiting for this product. I think, you know, they already have such a strong appetite for healthy food. You know, I grew up on, um, you know, grandma making me tonics and mixing our rice with different uh, different herbs and, uh, you know, different, um, you know, grains and mixing the grains um, and serving a meal to make it more nutritious. So I think Asian markets presented in the right format are definitely very excited um, to the offering that we're making. Now, I'm sure you've definitely tasted the product itself. What, what's it like? You know, I'm, I'm Chinese Malaysian, so I'm a rice eater. You know, rice is definitely life for me. And, uh, you know, if we're looking at a, um, a jasmine rice and a brown, brown rice, I would say it's in between. It's not as chewy as a brown rice. It's, it's much more easier to cook and much easier to eat and digest. But it, it, it's just got this beautiful nutty aroma to it. And um, I, think, I think people are really going to love it. May Young, CEO of My Plant Co, speaking with Sophie Johnson. Does this, it does sound delicious, actually? Uh, Ashley Wees is an oat producer from Narogen, a hundred kilometres, uh, sorry, a few hundred kilometres south of Perth, rather, and he's pretty excited about these opportunities that, that may lay ahead. We're seeing a, an increase in demand for oats around the world, and a lot of this is driven by new products. You know, in particular, say oat milk, um, which is having quite a significant impact on demand for oats. And I think if we can transition some of the demand for oats outside of breakfast cereal and into everyday foods for the, for the other meals during the day, it should have quite an impact on demand for oats um, going forward. And what sort of difference will this make for you as a grower? I like it because it opens up um, oats to a new market for us, really. So, you know, even a new demographic with younger people having oats that typically wouldn't have had porridge for breakfast. So I think to me, it gives a bit more certainty about the market. Um, going forward, I think we're seeing a real identification about the health benefits of whole grains in your diet and oats, especially with the amount of fibre and also the beta gluten for heart health. It's allowing that to push into, into into foods that typically had rice before, but it brings that extra health benefit. So for us, it's about probably more stable um, demand um, and into some new markets that we you know currently um, haven't had access to, I suppose. So what opportunities do you see in this space moving forward? Well, I think it, it's going to, it's a start of that natural progression of, you know, oats has typically come from a, a market that's been based around um, feed and it's shifted into this um, human consumption market, which is now very much being driven by health. And as we move into sort of the novel foods and the more um, processed or, or food ingredient market, that allows oats to now become um, an ingredient in a lot of other products um, where it typically hasn't been before. So, you know, I think we'll see oats starting to pop up, you know, as a flat as a flower in in other you know health food bars and and ingredients like that, um, food products like that, which I think opens it up us up to a lot more stable demand. Does this mean we can expect a few more oat growers in WA? Well, we need we need a few more. Um, it's always a hard thing. The oat market is quite different to um, a lot of the other grains we produce in that it is a, a little bit finite. And although that demand's growing, it's probably growing at about 15% a year. So we do need to produce more. Like, like last year, we would definitely have, have not produced enough 
oats um, to meet demand, and, and that reflects in the very high prices that are being paid for oats now. I'm always nervous about saying we need to grow more oats. We need to grow more oats in a considered way in that we need to keep in, increasing that supply of oats. And obviously, as an industry, we need to make it attractive to grow oats, but it needs to be tapered um, because the last thing we need is to oversupply the market and you know we see the oat price fall below a, a price that's attractive for growers to grow. So always nice to increase the amount of oats um, we produce, but um, in, a, you know, in, a, in a steady, steady kind of way. Will you be planting some more oats? We will be planting more oats, yeah. I think I think generally the industry needs, you know, probably to plant more oats, um, probably, you know, 20 or 30% more oats this year, and we'll, we'll probably re- be reflecting that in our plans this year as well. And going back to that price that you mentioned before, how much are we looking at for oats at the moment? Well, um, coming out of last season, it's extremely high, like around the $500 a tonne, and that is purely a reflection of um, the processes, particularly Australian processes that need need oats for their process, are basically fighting over the little bit of oats that's, that's out there. Um, that's not a sustainable price going forward in the in the short term, at least. Um, but I think we'll st- we, st- we still have quite high prices. We can forward contact a contract for next for next harvest as well. And I think part of that is the industry recognising that they need to send some good signals to growers to say, you know, you can lock in these prices and grow oats profitably um, if it fits your rotation and your system. Ashley Weiss, Narigen Farmer and the Chair of the Grains Australia Oak Council. He was speaking with Sophie Johnson. And you can read more about that. Just head uh, to our ABC website or you can search ABC Rural and Oats and you'll find Sophie's story. This week on Landline, we meet a farmer who's faced incredible adversity but is determined to stay on his remote property. I just lay there next to the vehicle knowing I'd had a broken neck. And is this one of the dirtiest jobs in agriculture? Scraping out years' worth of sheep poo from under the shearing shed. I could drag out 20 tonne a day, no problem, yeah. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iview. Ah, oh, brings back the memories dragging out sheep poo from under the shearing shed. I think that was a country kid's rite of passage, wasn't it? I know plenty of uh, country kids who are still doing it, selling it to all the people in towns to make some pocket money. So good on you if you're uh, you're doing that. Uh, now, shortly we're going to find out how much rain you may receive over the next few days. Uh, I can tell you right now, looking out my window here in Esperance, my thongs are going to get a little bit wet walking across the car park this afternoon. There have been a few isolated showers here. Not much in it. I think maybe four to five mil, but uh, certainly better than nothing. Bob sent us a text from Williams to ask, just wondering if you have the bomb on telling us about their latest three-month outlook. If so, can you start with the question on how accurate they've been in the last five years? He says farmers don't really have any faith in their forecasting. Can the bomb just admit they're guessing? A 50% chance of being drier or wetter is hardly a forecast. Uh, Bob, I'm not doing an interview with one of the longer-range forecasters. I do know that some farmers get frustrated with them. But today is the first day of autumn, and you're right, the Bureau of Meteorology has issued its latest long-range forecast. For this autumn, the Bureau is saying that there's a 60% to 75% chance of below median rainfall for the southwest corner of WA and that 
that includes Perth but excludes most southern and central areas. And the Bureau is also predicting most of Australia will have an 80% chance of above average temperatures. That's for this autumn. And of course that follows a summer that's on track to be Australia's third warmest on record nationally. But in Western Australia, it's on track to be the warmest summer on record. Our previous hottest summer was in 2018-2019. And as we know, summer has been much drier than usual for parts of WA, around 23% below average for rainfall. Uh, So there is a full wrap of the long-term weather up on the Bureau's website. But shortly, we will hear the four-day forecast. First, though, it is 29 minutes past 12. Let's head to the newsroom where our newsreader today is Courtney with us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Tara. A suppression order restricting media publication of court proceedings relating to former Broome Bishop Christopher Saunders has today been lifted, allowing details of his charges to be revealed for the first time. When the 74-year-old faced the Broome Magistrate Court for the first time last week, his lawyer requested a suppression order restricting coverage to ensure his client's right to a fair trial. The retired cleric has been arrested and charged with 19 sexual assault offences the previous day, to which his lawyer stated he intends to plead not guilty. He will return to court on June 17th, faced with 26 charges, including additional firearm offences. And Sam Kerr's father says a knee injury will prevent the Matildas star from playing at the Paris Olympics in July. Kerr ruptured an ACL while in mid-season training in Morocco in January. The Matildas say she's not officially out of the Olympics just yet and will be medically assessing her in April. Tara? Thank you so much, Courtney. Courtney Withers will be back uh, in about half an hour's time uh, with a full wrap of what's happening uh, in the news. In the next half an hour, though, we do have some uh, some pretty exciting stories for you coming up. We're going to be talking about nanoparticles. Now, I don't know if you've heard much about them. They're tiny. And when I say tiny, about uh, a thousandth of the size of a hair, if you can imagine that. And they've got some really interesting applications for the ag industry. So I do hope you can stay with me for the next half an hour when we have a look at some really cool technology that's uh, coming up. First, though, let's head to the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, Catherine Shelfout is our duty forecaster today. Uh, Catherine, let's start in the Southwest Land Division. I'm in Esperance. We've had a couple of showers. Uh, I'm competing in an outdoor fitness competition this weekend, and I don't mind if it rains, if that means we're going to get some rain uh, for farmers a little further out of town. So what are we expecting over the next couple of days, please? I think we can pretty confidently say there's going to be a bit of rain about Tara. Um, yeah, so currently across the state, um, there's a lot of activity. The west uh, western districts are clear, but uh, all through the centre and the southeast of the state, uh, there are some. Uh, there's a lot of cloud and some thunderstorms around. So um, we have a ridge moving south of the state. So we've had a pretty fresh southeasterly surge across the southern half today, and we've also got a broad trough uh, through central parts, uh, and that will move west over the next couple of days. So an interesting couple of days ahead. So tomorrow uh, we'll see that trough uh, pushing back uh, towards the west coast a little bit and we'll have a low that forms at the base of the trough um, that will push offshore uh, to the west. So we will continue to see fresh and gusty southeasterlies um, and they will push further north into central parts of the state on Saturday. 
We do expect to be issuing a warning for damaging wind gusts. Uh, that will be over the Darling Scarp, so only affecting sort of Perth and parts of the uh, central west there. Um, but we also have a lot of moisture that's coming down, so it's been quite wet up north, and we're starting to see that moisture extending down the trough uh, into southern WA. So um, during Saturday, we expect to see a pretty broad area of showers and thunderstorms um, extending right from the north of the state uh, down to the southwest, uh, across the entire southwest land division. Um, there is a small area within that where we might see some severe thunderstorms with damaging wind gusts, but that's really sort of the southern Gascoigne and just far northern parts of the southwest land division. Uh, and so for Saturday, we're thinking uh, rainfall totals sort of 10 to 15 millimetres with isolated 40 millimetres. Wow. We are getting um, our main sort of two forecast models um, putting the heaviest rainfall areas um, in slightly different areas and that's because they're modelling um, where the actual low will be slightly differently. So um, in one case we're seeing sort of the heaviest rainfall just south of Perth uh, into the western wheat belt and with the other model it's more um, sort of from the hills out to Cunderdon. But actually Sunday is the more interesting day. We get the high moving into the bite and that trough and low pushing further west offshore. So we'll get winds turning a bit more northeasterly across the southwest land division. Um, and yeah, a, a more active day for thunderstorms across the entire southwest land division. So we do have a greater chance of severe thunderstorms on Sunday. Um, so we could see some supercell storms with uh, heavy rain, large hail and damaging winds uh, through the wheat belt and adjacent areas. And also some areas of heavy rainfall extending into the Great Southern and the uh, southwest as well. Again, the two main models are bullseyeing slightly different areas with the heavy rainfall. So it could be um, sort of the wheat belt in the Great Southern or it could be a little bit further west um, through inland, sort of inland from Bunbury. Um, and rainfall totals on Sunday, 15 to 30 millimetres and isolated up to 70 millimetres. So I guess please just watch this space in terms of any forecasts and warnings because uh, we'll have more certainty as we get um, into tomorrow. Um, but yeah, those are the most uh, significant sort of days. On Monday, we'll see uh, the high moving east and the trough moving inland. So we'll get some lighter winds ahead of um, a ridge pushing in over the southwest corner, and then we'll get a return to southeasterly winds. So most importantly, we'll see the rain and thunderstorm activity moving east and clearing western parts of the southwest land division. And then on Tuesday, uh, a continuation of that eastward movement. So rain and thunderstorms pretty much uh, out of the southwest land division by Tuesday, apart from some showers along the south coast, and we'll get that uh, ridge bringing um, drier air and southeasterly winds uh, across the southwest land division. Wow, so certainly a bit going on there, Catherine. And as you mentioned, um, some very, it's hard to tell really if two of your models are saying different things and thunderstorms being the way they are, but some sounds like some potentially pretty significant rainfall over the next couple of days. I think what we can say is that the models have been quite consistently going for this on Sunday. So somewhere there's going to be some decent rainfall um, throughout the Southwest Land Division, just where the heaviest bit will be. Yeah, still a bit of uncertainty around that. Well, that's great news. Uh, look, let's head further north and east. Uh, how are the forecast districts looking there for the next few days? 
Yeah, so we've seen um, reasonably heavy rainfall across the Kimberley the last few days. We're continuing to have a, a broad trough across northern WA, and so north-northwesterly winds are dragging in moisture uh, from tropical waters um, to the north. So, uh, yeah, we'd expect to see over the next four days a pretty much a continuation of that shower and thunderstorm activity. So we've seen rainfall totals around about 40 to 60 millimetres daily, occasionally a little bit more than that. Um, so that's across the Kimberley. Um, and we will um, continue to see storms extending down the trough uh, into the Pilbara and through the north interior as well. Um, also seeing temperatures easing a bit um, just under the cloud and the shower activity there. So temperatures through the inland Pilbara dropping down into the 30s over the next few days, which uh, should be a pleasant change. Absolutely, it will. Uh, Catherine Shelfout from the Bureau, thank you so much for your time on today's country. I very much appreciate it. Thanks, Tara. And uh, let's have a look at some rainfall now because I know there has been a little bit around. Um, our weather wizard, is that what I'm calling you today, Richard? Is that what you've paid me to, to call you? Weather wizard, Richard oh, Hudson? There's no need to put weather at the start of that. <laughs> Just the wizard is fine. That's no worries at all. <laughs> you have five mils and above for the state. Again, the majority of that rain is in the Kimberley. So Bedford Downs Airstrip, 32. Bidjidanga, 7. Billaluna 10, Curtin Airport 30, Derby 23 and at the main roads 37. So 23 was at the airport, 37 at the main roads. Diggers Rest 9, Drysdale River Station 17, Emma Gorge 15, Flora Valley 9, Gibb River 13, Kachana 18, Columbaroo 10, Leopold Downs 14, Lombardina 17, Marion Downs 6, Mount Barnett 5, Mount House Airstrip 19, Old Mornington Homestead had 41, Parry Creek Farm 9, Siddons Creek 11, Troughton Island 11, Udiala 15, Winjana Gorge 46, Wyndham 29, Yampi Sound 59 and Yulumbu 16. In the Pilbara, nothing. In the Gascoigne, uh, nothing really. Bulga Downs had a mill. Nothing in the interior. But then in the goldfields, Leonora had five mills. And then for the entire southwest land division, there was hardly anything at all, except a little bit of a downpour, downpour at um, Salmon Gums in the southern coastal region, your neck of the woods. Oh, and that's fantastic, Richard, because as we know, those farmers in Salmon Gums and around that area have, of course, they've been um, declared water deficient. So fingers crossed some of that water's flowing into some of those farmers' dams over the next few days as well. And they might get a bit more, hopefully. Mm, fingers crossed as well. Hey, because of the conditions, a number of shires have got total fire bans in place today. So in the Goldfields Midlands region, the shires of Laverton and Menzies have one. Then in the southwest, there's Capel, Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray and Waruna. And then in the lower southwest, Augusta, Margaret River, Bridgetown, Greenbushes, Bustleton, Donnybrook, Bailing Up. So you know what the story is. When there's a total fire ban, you can't do anything that can start a fire. No uh, hot work, grinding, metal work, those sorts of things, and no off-road use of four-wheel drives, quad bikes and bobcats and those sorts of things. And if you're not sure what you can and can't do on a total fire ban, just go to Emergency WA. You'll find out if your shire has one in place, and then if you click on that, it'll give you details of what you can and can't do. Richard Hudson, thank you very much. This is The Country Hour with Tara DeLandgraft on ABC Local Radio WA. 
All right, it's coming up 20 minutes to one. Well, wild dog control in Western Australia can be an emotive and divisive issue. Some people want to conserve wild dogs and dingoes, others want them culled. A well-known wild dog researcher in Western Australia says there may be some good lessons to be learned from South African farms and their approaches to pest control. Dr Tracy Kreplin's travelled to South Africa as part of a Churchill Fellowship to investigate different types of native predator management in livestock systems, focusing mainly on black-backed jackals and caracals. The jackal is probably a little bit smaller than a wild dog, uh, but they are a big predator. Uh, well, they predate on sheep. Uh, they do a little bit more scavenging, but some of their ecology and biology is quite similar to wild dogs. Caracals are like a really, really monstrous feral cat wow. um, that are really good predators and they're cryptic. So, yeah, imagine a really big cat that can take down a sheep. <laughs> yeah, put that in the mix. And they're both native to South Africa? They are. What did you find in terms of the most, some of the more effective control measures that are used there? It's illegal to use poison in South Africa, so they heavily rely on trapping. So no 1080, no strychnine, nothing? Nothing, nope. Um, Historically they did, but not in the present day. Um, They do a lot of shooting, particularly with a thermal scope, um, and that's all done by the farmer. They they don't have licensed pest management technicians like that we do here. They do leg hold trapping for jackals and they do cage trapping for caracals, but it's very difficult to catch a caracal in a cage. One fellow told me in his whole farming career he caught a caracal twice in a cage trap, so they're pretty clever. Um, and they do have what they call jackal-proof fencing, but it is, it's not, not up like our state barrier fence. It's not massively big fencing or anything like that, and that was subsidised by the government many, many years ago to be built. So there's lots of those about. So how would you rate their success? Is there areas where people can't run small stock in South Africa, like what we see in WA at the moment? Uh, it's really localised to different areas. So some areas it, they would find it very, very difficult and some areas um, they're doing pretty well. It really depends on the density of predators in that area and, and seasons obviously affect all of that as well. Um, but the, the guys have put a lot of effort into removing predators from farms Um, which has actually changed the behaviour of the predators over there. So that was also really interesting, looking at predator activity on conservation estate versus farms. So, yeah, their level of persecution uh, would not be as high as as Western Australia's, but that means that they've also endured bigger losses, whereas Western Australia's really proactive in their control and we forget what our losses would be like if we actually didn't have as much control tools on the ground. Because they're smaller farms and smaller number of livestock, they can often corral their livestock when they're lambing. Um, It does impact wool quality and the parasite load in the individual sheep, but it means that they can really keep a good eye on uh, their losses. So they, they put a lot of effort. They're always on the ground looking after their livestock, but it's very management intensive. So basically you couldn't take that approach and paste that onto a WA, particularly a WA pastoral station, we're just not talking about the same thing, are we? No, no, the landscapes and the farm size or the property size is different. So, yeah, you you just, the management is not the same, not at all. It's You don't have the people power and you don't have the smaller property size where you know what all your animals are all of the time.
There are some conversations in WA about the cultural value of the dingo. What did you find in South Africa in terms of the the cultural value of some of their predators? It's very, very just like here in WA around our wild dogs or dingoes that there's a variety of values towards predators. So that meant that they also have a variety of tools. So we didn't just look at what farmers did. We went to conservation programs where they're trying to conserve predators in some areas and not let them roam onto farming and agricultural properties. And so I learned a lot about how to bridge that gap between people who don't want to control their predators and do want to control their predators. So in some cases, we're talking about coexistence of predators and livestock, really, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yep. Yeah. Do you, do you take inspiration from that? Do you, do you see that perhaps coming in or being part of your work in the future here in Australia? I really hope so, because as we know, like you, you've just mentioned, that the um, state of play around dog control, wild dog control in Western Australia is always evolving and changing. So we need a variety of tools and solutions for a variety of types of landowners and finding ways for neighbouring properties who run sheep next door to people who don't want to do predator control. We've got to find a way to manage that relationship and manage it so that if you've got your predators on one side and you value them, awesome, but you can't impact your neighbour next door who's trying to run sheep. So how do we uh, find management tools that'll, that'll bridge that gap? Dr Tracy Kreplins, her Churchill Fellowship report was recently released on predator management in South Africa. And Dr Kreplins was speaking with Joe Prendergast. Quarter to one, you're listening to The Country Hour with Tara Delangraff. Coming to you from the Esperance offices today. Uh, and being that you are with me, I'm afraid I'm going to bring it back to crops every single time. So imagine being able to give your plants pesticide treatment in the form of a tiny pill. So you can use less agrochemicals in a more targeted way. Nanosoils Bio is a small agricultural technology company that's using nanoparticles of silicon that are about a million times smaller than a tennis ball to improve the efficiency of pesticides and fertiliser. Dr Kong Vu, founder and CEO of the company, says the nanoparticles are applied as a seed coating and even without added agrochemicals, the treatment provides great plant health. We use the nanoparticle as a delivery platform, so we encapsulate pesticides, fertilizer inside the nanoparticle, so by doing that we can maximize the benefits of pesticides, fertilizer for farmers, agrochemical industry, and minimize the residue to environment. Can you explain for me what a nanoparticle is? Yes, the nanoparticle is like a million times smaller than a ball. And so why is that useful? Because once it goes to that small size, so we can control the uptake of the nanoparticle in the plant. So we can translocate and we can control the destination of the pesticides in the plant so we can protect the plants more effectively. So it's like a tiny, weeny little capsule yes. um, that the plant can absorb very easily. And what are you putting inside the capsules? Yes, so we can put a variety of pesticides such as fungicides, insecticides, and we more focused on the water, not water-soluble insecticides, because insecticides is developed for good. Farmer needs insecticides, but at the same time, insecticides kill the bees. So if we can control the insecticide, that can protect the plant from the pests, but protect the bees. That could be a significant for farmers, agrochemical industry, and for environment. 
How do you apply um, these these tiny particles? Because I imagine that they would be difficult to control and they could affect the bees anyway. So how, how do you apply them? So we can apply on the, on the seed coating. So what we're doing is we coat the nanoparticle what insecticide on the seed. And we then by this case, the only job for money to do is sow the seed in the soil. So it's very simple. And what sort of results have you had in trials so far? So we have tested the nanoparticle and the, the nanoparticle, like we use silica nanoparticle, and the silica has been used as a biostimulation for a long time. And now we, now we just reformulate this silica biostimulation as a nanoparticle to add more function that is a delivery. So the nanoparticle has a positive impact on the seed germination. So we have tested and we saw that the nanoparticle alone increased the root of the plant, so which is good. And now the nanoparticle can have improved the translocation of the insecticide as well. Where else in the world is this technology being used? Okay, so originally we used for anti-cancer drug delivery. So six years ago, we used this nanoparticle for anti-cancer drug delivery. So that's the main purpose why I came to Australia. And then when I finished the project for biomedical engineering, I realized the nanoparticle can be applied for agriculture because pesticides and anti-cancer pretty much similar in chemical structure so why don't we use for agriculture that we can commercialize and we can bring to the market faster and where are you at with commercialization so i have been working on the nanoparticle for over six years and we have developed a very simple and cost effective of making the nanoparticle now so we are about to find the patent in a couple months and then we're ready to stick to advertise the technology and looking for a business partner. Dr Kong Vu, founder and CEO of Nanosaurs Bio, speaking with Lucinda Joyce. Well, as you probably know, we have a long weekend here in WA this weekend. I wonder what you may have planned. Uh, hopefully something that involves puddles if this rain makes its through, uh, way through as expected. In Tasmania, one value-adding farm project in Hagley is ready for its annual grand opening tomorrow with 10,000 people expected to attend. With the help of professional maize designers in England, Anna and Rowan Clark grow and mow a crop of maize every year and then open it to the public. Anna Clark says this year's maize is in the shape of a sea dragon and plenty of thoughts gone into it. And we have five hectares that we grow maize, M-A-I-Z-E, and then we cut a maize, M-A-Z-E, into the crop. Um, and then we open it up to the public to come in to walk through the maze and play a game within the maze. It is different because we are not selling an actual tangible product, okay? So people always associate farms with a tangible product, you know, like selling vegetables or wine or, you know, something else, wheat or different crops. We're actually selling a memory. So, yeah, I think sometimes people find that it seems to be an easy thing to go to a concert and do that, but to associate that with a farm it's kind of a bit, sometimes a bit of a harder sell. Sounds like an amazing, <clears throat> excuse me, way to spend a weekend, doesn't it? Uh, another way that you may want to be spending the weekend, and certainly many people do, is donning the running boots because farmers and people in rural communities are flocking to their local park run events every weekend. It's for their mental health, mental wellbeing, and just as importantly, to make new friends. Claire Bunbury donned her active wear to catch up with the park runners and walkers at a historic village in northern Tasmania. Good morning, everyone. 
It's 9am on a Saturday morning. Rain, hail or shine, except for an extreme weather event, people are here to partake in Park Run. It's time for a debrief before we start. Uh, welcome to Westbury Town Common Park Run event number 80. Um, Jeff Ayton is a farmer from Deloraine. Park Run has been integral for Jeff in improving his fitness. Uh, well, I started bushwalking. I moved from King Island a few years ago and, <clears throat> and then I thought I should lose some weight and go a bit faster up these mountains. So I started walk, walking more regularly and then running about 100 metres and nearly hemorrhaging. And one day I was walking around here and I saw a poster for expressions of interest to go in park run. So I thought, oh, that'll be wonderful, wonderful concept. And then I saw the 5K bit and I thought, oh, no, can't do that. So I went home and thought about it for a couple of weeks and ran 2Ks and then 3 and then turned up here and managed to run 5 and that's it. I've been running ever since and I absolutely love it. It's a wonderful community. I met some lovely people. Mostly been running here but ran at Railton once and I've run a few at Albert Park which is an absolute blast. But I've been running further. I can run 10Ks quite easily now and last weekend I ran from Deloraine across to here which was 21.2Ks. How did you get home? Got a lift. <laughs> Thought about catching the bus, but didn't have a timetable or a phone with me. Beekeeper Andrew Perry is here for the first time with his mate, parkrun legend Coppo Carpsicus. It's been uh, a long journey to get here, uh, my fitness journey, and uh, yeah, and I've just had a, my first child, so it's been a bit hard to get here and Very getting hard. COVID, and, uh, but today was it, I'm, just, I'm coming. Sounds like it's the first day of a very exciting part of your life, the next uh, yes, chapter. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I think we all need fitness, so this is a good way to promote it. And if there's one person that can promote fitness, it's this bloke. <laughs> and what makes joining something like Park Run a bit more achievable for people that want to start their fitness journey? I think it's the community, uh, really good community vibes. Uh, also, it's not just about running. Yeah, it says park run, but you can walk it, you can run it, you can take the dog. There's ranges from 80 years of age, even though I've seen people 90s and 100, um, to little kids doing it. So anyone can do it. And there's no judgment, is there? You just do it. Yeah, that's yep, right. Yeah. Yep. Well, it's all common goals. Everyone's out there having a go. If you want to go hard and, and run like that young fella yeah, did, yeah, he did yeah. 19 minutes 30, yeah, he smashed yeah, it. Yeah. Um, go for it. If you want to walk it and just enjoy the countryside, do that if you want to take your dog. There's so many different ways you can do park run, which is what I love. Farmers Beck and Nick Dornoff from Quamby Brook make sure that they get to every park run at Westbury Town Common. Well, we generally do try to get off the farm a bit and Westbury's nice and close to us, so we do make it our weekly thing and the kids love it and we have a great time, so we book it in every Saturday. Farming can be a fairly long and arduous and long hours, often seven days a week, and park run and the fantastic little community we have here is just that one known that we make an effort to come to every week. It's fantastic. Uh, Nick, you must be pretty tired because you were actually pushing a pram with two kids in it. <laughs> do you do that every weekend? Oh, look, no, no, I won't attest to doing it every weekend. We, we tend to swap it around. Whoever's the soft target for the day, mum or dad, and whoever might behave more for and not try to uh, conduct a mutiny halfway around on that pushes for that week. <laughs> 
Dairy farmer Jeff Ayton ending that report from Claire Bunbury. There you go. Something to do this weekend. If you're at a loose end with all these puddles around, go for a brisk 5K walk. Uh, look, about 450 head of cattle sold at Mount Barker this morning. Trade cattle they were. That's well down on the previous sale, down by about 670 in fact. Tracy Kilner's been at the sale. Uh, hi Tracy, can you run through the prices please? Numbers were down for a small yarding of 448 mixed quality cattle for our final double sale of the season. Prices trended up on all prime processing types with processor competition. Heavy cows sold to 174 cents and heavy bulls to 180 cents a kilo. Grown steers weighing 600 to 750 kilos sold for 180 to 210 cents. 500 to 600 kilo steers made 200 to 226 cents. And the lighter weights returned 164 to 286 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made from 140 to 200 cents. And the heavier weights sold at 140 to 190 cents. Heavy cows gained, selling from 138 to 174. Medium weights made from 138 to 150. Store cows sold from 52 to 140 cents. And heavy bulls were firm at 104 to 180 cents a kilo. Young Murray Grey cow and calf units sold from 1200 to $1,290 per unit. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you so much, Tracy. Uh, and as Tracy said, that exact figure was 448. That was the cattle sold at Mount Barker this morning. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for the world today. Electoral test. Voters head to the polls tomorrow for the Dunkley by-election in a major test for both the standing of the Albanese government and Peter Dutton's opposition. Australian women suffer from a global shortage of a drug to ease the symptoms of menopause and Russia's President Vladimir Putin warns the West it risks nuclear war if troops enter Ukraine. The World Today at lunchtime. The World Today coming up for you after the news at one o'clock, so not too far away now. Before we do, though, there was another steady week for the wool market this week, as our wool reporter Danny Burkett explains. Very steady market across the three centres this week in Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle. We look at the Fremantle market, 17 micron closed at 17.40. That was par for the week. 18 micron dropped five clean here nor there, 15.25 on the close. 19 micron plus 10 at 14.10. Interesting point, if we look at the 19 and a half, they were 25 dearer for the week. 20 microns closed at 13.35, they were up five. 21 microns minus five to close at 13.20. Again, no official report on 22 micron, but would suggest they closed at 12.85, fully firm against last week. If we look at that on a 10-year decile ranking, 17 micron sits at roughly the 40% decile, so 40% below today's price, 60 percent of the time above 18 micron at the 30th decile as in the as is the 19 micron so 30 percent of the time in the last 10 years below today's price 70 percent of the time above 20 micron also at that 30th decile 21s and 22 sit at the 40th decile so 40 percent below 60 percent above so just trying to give you a picture of where that market sits over the last decade pieces and bellies across the board over the two days fully firm as were lock stains crutchings over the two 
two days, again, fully firm, which is a great result for that end of the market. An interesting point on the washing lambs, or referring to 0.1 and 0.2 VM, very few of those traded at this time of the year, but we have had a few go across the floor, and unusually, uh, they are trading at very good levels for this time of the year. So across the board, across the three centres, a very sound result for the wool market this week. Mm, definitely. And um, who's been buying this week, Danny? Well, if I um, say tech wool trading at 23.3% of the fleece wool, to be precise, and that's that's merino fleece wool, so they took a huge chunk of that market. PJ Morris, uh, West Australian-based business, as always mentioned, 13.5%, and Devil Wool Exports, 11 and TNU back in the top four with 10%. And again, just mentioning tech wool trading, uh, we're the second largest buyer in the crossbreds, the largest buyer in the skirtings, and the third largest buyer in the oddments. So very similar for tech wool trading over the last three weeks they have been the wool market in Australia. Wow. Um, next week, what can we expect? Just over 41,000 bars between Fremantle, Melbourne and Sydney. So I think Fremantle has roughly 9,500 bars, which is certainly pushing it for our market with the indent buyers. So we'll just see how this market bodes after the long weekend as we walk into that market. That's Danny Burkett from West Coast Wool's there. And that's it for today's Country Hour. And for the week, thanks so much for your company. Tara DeLangra, I've been with you for the last hour. Belinda Varischetti will be back with you on Monday. Stay tuned for The World Today. Right now, though, it is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.